Hi, welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. This is the fourth Sunday after the Sunday of Epiphany, and today's lessons are Psalm 37, the first six verses, and then the first eight verses of Micah 6, and then we flip over for the epistle lesson to 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, and then finally, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, the first 12 verses, commonly known as the Beatitudes. So that's what we're going to be thinking about and talking about today. And it begins really with um, the first thing that always strikes me is, is that um, it was probably 25-ish years ago on this particular Sunday, somewhere in, in that range anyway, when I wrote the first sermon I'd ever written in my entire life. Um, I was going through a really hard time. We were struggling with some things. My um, person that I had worked with had defrauded our main customer. And we were just figuring out that you're not going to be able to rebuild your business if um, the boss defrauded the person or the entity who was 99% of your client base. So what I needed at the time was a new focus in life because the old one had passed away. I was still grieving it and still trying to hold on to it, but wasn't able to do that very effectively because there was nothing literally that I could do to fix this. We were fraud investigators. And so when you're a fraud investigator and your main partner then commits fraud against your main client, very difficult then to come back and rebuild that particular practice. So I, I was struggling and I was at night, I, I, would, I was agonizing is a better way to say it. I wrote and filled multiple spiral notebooks with the stuff that I was going through. I had just come back to the Lord when this happened. I mean, literally eight weeks before I had come back to the Lord and this happens. And were devastated. And for a year, we didn't know it because not only did he defraud the government, he lied to me and the other partner about what had actually happened. So he defrauded them. And then to cover his fraud on them, he defrauded us, his partners. So we were struggling with not knowing what the actual situation was. And then finally, I did something that I was not supposed to have done, which is to contact the person that he said was the impediment so I could speak with that person. And lo and behold, he had no earthly idea what I was talking about. I lived at that time for an entire year under the illusion of a lie. A lie that had been told to me about how the world operated. The world that I operated in and lived in and what was wrong. I was living in a delusion that I didn't create. But I couldn't dig myself out of it. And so I'm struggling with faith. Struggling with what does it mean that I, I had all this. And now I, I, I added God to that and then lost that. And the struggle overwhelmed me for a very long time because I had what I wanted already. And then I had him. So I had literally in my mind everything my heart could desire. And then suddenly, very suddenly, I didn't. And the only thing that I had left was him. And the reality was, it wasn't enough. I wanted desperately to have that thing that I had, that thing called success, 
that thing called wealth, that th all those things that go along with it. I had everything that I wanted. I had validation because I was an expert. I had all the stuff that I wanted in life and then added Jesus to that. And then Jesus took it all away from me. <laughs> that was my way of looking at it, right? And so what I had to struggle through all that time was, is he enough? And my answer for most of that time was, no, he's not. He is not. I was angry. I, I agonized over all this stuff. I cried out to him day and night for that thing. Not for him, not for more of him, but for that thing that I had lost, that thing called success. And it was a painful time. And so in the midst of writing all this stuff, one night I stayed up almost literally all night long writing. And what I wrote on was the fourth verse of Psalm 37. <clears throat> Take delight in the Lord and you shall give, he shall give you your heart's desires. And what it did, what that verse did was break me. Not permanently. I got to be broken all the time. But that verse broke me that day. Because that verse, I finally understood what it meant because I was reading through the Psalms every single month because that's the way the Psalter in the prayer book is set up to read them every single month. You read the entire Psalter. So I, I read that verse that night and understood it for the very first time because what I'd been doing was hearing that take delight in the Lord and he shall give you your heart's desire. It's like, I do delight in you. You know my heart's desire I want you to give it to me. And then what I realized finally was I wasn't going to get that because it was the wrong desire of my heart. I was still seeking after something of an earthly kingdom and wanted Jesus to be a secondary part of that. And what I finally understood that said was if you take delight in the Lord, then he will give you the desires of your heart and you'll begin to want what he wants to give you. And that way you can constantly be thankful for what he has given you instead of always wishing you had that other thing. Because if you're in that place, then you can never truly give thanks because there's something else. And so if we could learn to ask him and be thankful for our daily bread without worrying about tomorrow's bread, then we'd be in a much better place. We'd be in the place, in fact, I know it's better because what Jesus said we should be. And I know what that metaphor that he uses about praying for your daily bread is. It goes back to the Exodus when God literally gave them their daily bread called manna. And if you tried to gather too much of it, it rotted and got maggots. So no, don't hoard things. Don't do that. No, no, don't worry about tomorrow's bread. I mean, I'm sure that the first several days of the manna, it was like, is it going to happen again tomorrow? Is it going to happen again tomorrow? Is it going to happen again tomorrow? And so you could be thankful for it every day, right? Because I didn't have it yesterday, but I did get it today. And it comes tomorrow, and it comes tomorrow, and it comes tomorrow. And thank you, Lord. What an amazing thing it is that you provide for us on a daily basis. And then after a while, well, we know that that thankful feeling went away because they said, we're sick of this stuff. We want meat. We want something else. And God said, all right, you want meat? You really, that's what you want. You want meat? All right, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get me. I'm going to give you so much meat that it's going to be coming out of your nostrils. You want meat? I'm going to give you meat. 
So you got, they got meat, and then they got sick, <laughs> and then people died. So the, the problem is, is that they forgot how to be thankful on a daily basis. And one of the things we have to do, I think, is, is get to that place where we can be thankful for God's gifts to us on a daily basis. I, I can't tell you how many times he has to remind me of that <laughs> because I take so much for granted. You know, I take having a house, I take having a wife, I take having children, I take my daily bread, I take my car, I take, yeah, you know, you, I can just name this stuff on and on and on. But what if I didn't have all that? Would he be enough? I'm not even going to answer that <laughs> because I'm not confident. I'm not confident that my answer is truly yes. But that's the point of all this stuff. That's the point of Micah. God says, have I burdened you? I'm sorry. If, I, if it's a chore to worship me and to love me, I'm really sorry that I burdened you by will. Bringing you out of Egypt, delivering you from your enemies, giving you the promised land. Really sorry for all the burdens I've put upon you. He says, what do I ask of you? This is the Micah lesson. What do I ask of you? Do I ask you to bring me all this stuff, this food, if, if, if thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Is that what I really want from you? No, it's not, actually. What I want for you to do is to show the world who I am, to show it what it means to be like me. And the way you'll know what it is to be like me is to look at your own history. I've revealed to you who I am. He says, what does the Lord require? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. Justice and mercy, wait a minute. Wait, huh? Yep, justice and mercy. Truth and grace. Those things have to go with one another. You can't have strict justice because if you have strict justice, what happens? Who gets into heaven? Nobody. If you get strict justice, who gets to enjoy life tomorrow? Nobody. <laughs> if you get strict justice, who gets into the promised land? Certainly not the people who made golden calves. So you can't just have strict justice. You have to have mercy with that. But mercy only means something if justice exists. There's no point of mercy. There's no, there, there's no definition of mercy unless there's justice. So those two things have to go together. Justice has to have balance with mercy because if there's strict justice, nobody exists. But mercy only exists if there's justice. So those two things have to go together. And then he said to walk humbly with your God. Seems like that ought to be the easiest part of this. It, that should be the easiest, most common, most ordinary, most natural thing in the entire world, right? I mean, you read Genesis 1, and the response should be what? Walking humbly before the one who created everything. should be the easiest thing in the whole world. Nothing I ever have. Nothing I am. Nothing exists if not for him. I don't have any power remotely like that. I'm an insignificant speck of nothing in comparison with that. And so it should be really easy for me to walk humbly before my God. My worst nightmare, however, would be if I got to heaven, come before the throne of grace, and God said, I, I want to play a tape. And that tape is your prayer life, John. 
and my prayer life sometimes sounded and sounds like this. It sounds like I need this. Why won't you let me have this? I mean, whether I say it out loud or whether it's just going on in my heart doesn't make any difference, which of those two it is. But, it, but we have this presumption before the Lord that we're owed something. Job had that presumption. The people who rejected Jesus had that presumption because what happened was is, is that he's held out to be all this, right? John the Baptist says, here's the Messiah. This is the one who is to come. And leading up to the reading that we had today in the Beatitudes, as soon as John proclaims him, I mean, Jesus' story is a lot like Moses' Remember, before John proclaims Jesus, before he's baptized, what's happened? Herod says there's a rival king in this world, and I'm going to take care of that. So I'm going to kill all the Jewish babies. Less than two years old. Sounds a lot like Exodus 2. And so what happens is there's this miraculous salvation of one. It's exactly the obverse, though, of what happened in the first one, right? Because the, they go to Egypt to avoid the persecution. Before, <laughs> the persecution was actually in Egypt. And then when they came for Moses because he had killed the Egyptian, what did he do? He fled Egypt. And then he comes back to save the people. So what happens is the family, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, flee. And they go to Egypt and then they come back. So you got this incredible thing. It's a virgin birth. And then on top of the virgin birth, you've got this mosaic story of the Redeemer who has to himself first be saved before he can save the others in a miraculous way. And so he comes back and he gets baptized. John does his thing and says, this is the one, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So all eyes are on Jesus now, right? So what does he do? He goes out in the wilderness all by himself because the question that's got to be answered is, is God enough? Because he knows what's before him, what's going to happen. But the worst part about what's going to happen in Jesus's life, the thing that threatens to derail everything more than anything else is the applause of men. You can get hooked on the applause of men and you can forget the will of God. It would have been easy for Jesus to have lost sight of the cross. But he kept the cross ever in mind, always at the forefront in everything he did, no matter how much opposition he got from his own people over the idea of the cross. Right from the start, Jesus has got the end in mind. He's always keeping the cross ahead of him because the, that which lies ahead is far greater than anything else that might happen. And so he has to be tempted first, and the temptations are first based in his identity in the Father. If you're the Son of God, Command these stones. I know I'm the son of God, was his answer. I don't have to do that. He said that <clears throat> man shall not live by bread alone, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That if you look at the Beatitudes, what we're supposed to do is take the attitude that Christ took in those temptations by responding with the word of God. And, and he said, even after 40 days of nothing to eat, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. What he's saying is, is that none of this matters. Only that matters. I take my delight in him. I find all my delight and all my sustenance in the Father who provides all things for me. I will not reach out and grasp and presume 
I am the son of God. You're not going to question that. You're not going to make me doubt that. But it's the question of identity. If you're the son of God, do these things. We can have that presumption in our own lives too because we know we're children of God. We, we rest in the love of Christ. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we're supposed to be presumptuous and grab for the things that we want, even the things that we need after 40 days without food. The second temptation comes down to if you're the son of God, throw yourself down off the parapet of the temple. Don't tempt the Lord your God is Jesus' response to that. But again, if you're the son of God, prove yourself. Prove yourself to yourself and prove yourself to everybody else. Throw yourself down because he'll catch you and snatch you up. No, I'm the son of God. I know that. Without throwing myself down off the parapet of the temple, without doing something foolish to prove that and to test God. I don't have to test his love for me. I know his love for me. He's walking humbly before his God. He relies on what he knows. He believes wholly in the ability of the Father to do those things without ever testing him to prove it. And then finally, what's he offered? He's offered all the kings of the world, kingdoms on earth. And his response there is, get away. I got a kingdom. Kingdom that's greater than all the kingdoms of earth. It sits in judgment over the thrones of the earth. Get away from me. And then what happens is he begins his ministry. He calls his disciples. And then great crowds come. He went throughout all Judea teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him. And that's where he does the Sermon on the Mount. He sees the crowd and he goes up onto the mountain and his disciples come up with him and then he begins to teach. And for the next two chapters of Matthew, you hear his teaching. But he begins in a place that sounds comforting at some level, but the Beatitudes begin with promise and hope, it seems, and end with pain at some level because it feels like he pulls the rug out from under you. <clears throat> Listen to it as we... Pay attention to those verses. He starts out with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're sitting there and you're poor in spirit because you're broken by your sin, you're broken by sin around you, you've broken over what other people have done to you and the things that it's cost you. If you're broken in those ways and you're, you're trampled down, you're a bruised reed, a wick that's about to burn out. Jesus gives hope and he says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. And, and there's multiple ways we can mourn. We can mourn over death. We can mourn over our sin. We can mourn over the sin of the world. We can mourn by watching television and seeing pictures of uh, mistreated children in Africa. We can mourn over the videos of dogs and other kinds of animals being mistreated. We can mourn over the brokenness of the world. There's so much to mourn over. It's absolutely unbelievable. The divisions among people, the divisions among friends, the divisions among family, the divisions that just exist in our world, the people that we wish we didn't see sometimes that we see and they suddenly come into our path and you think, well, that ruined my day because I didn't want to see that person today. Whatever those things are, driving, 
You can mourn over the brokenness of people not being able to drive very well. So we've got all these things in our world that we can be mourning over all the time. Jesus promises something there, right? He promises comfort for those who mourn. And then he says, blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Well, if you're the meek, if you're the people, in fact, that Jesus's mother raises up in the Magnificat in Luke 2, in, in her prayer, her song, Mary's song, where, where she says that, that the humble, the lowly, and the meek will be lifted up and exalted. The poor will be lifted up. Sounds like that. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It, if I'm in that crowd, and I'm in any of those three positions right now, I'm thinking he is the Messiah, and he is going to bring this. My day has come. He's healed all these people. He's done all these things. He's the Messiah. He's come to bring the kingdom to the earth. He's come to restore all things. And what he's saying is, is that those who are suffering now are going to be the first ones to benefit. And not only the first, most. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, you changed the topic on me. <laughs> I was struggling and hurting and all that. And you promised me great things. And now you say, well, in addition to that, I've also got a hunger and thirst, not for food, not for justice, not for relief from pain, not from, no, I got a hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's got to be the first thing. My first job has to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I'll give it a shot. I'm not sure. I, I'm positive I'm not that guy on, on a 24-7 basis. But, but Jesus twists it there and points us now in a different direction. He points us to say, this is what you need to hunger and thirst for. I know that your body is made for hungering and thirsting after food and drink, but you soul, you are made for righteousness. You should be seeking after that, desiring that as much as you desire sustenance for your bodily needs. And if you do, he says, you'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So if I'm the kind of person who hurts and grieves for other people, who hides my own hurt, my own grief, because, well, nobody's got time for that, and I ignore it and I press it down, but I know it's there, Jesus is promising me, if you do that, if you're the kind of person who is extending mercy to others, you yourself will receive that mercy same way. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's me out. <laughs> but he's challenging us to be all these things. We can take some pride and believe we are some of these things. I might consider myself merciful. I might consider myself to be poor in spirit. I might consider myself to be meek. I might consider all those things. But do I really know that? Do I really embrace those things for myself? Because Jesus says if you embrace these attitudes, you're going to be greatly blessed. Well, that's I don't know where he got that. They don't teach that attitude anywhere else. So nowhere else that I know of that, that anybody teaches, hey, best thing you could do is pursue being poor in spirit. It would be to pursue mourning, to pursue being meek. 
that's valued so highly in our culture. It's unbelievable. Blessed are you if you're seeking after uh, righteousness. I'm not sure where that's ever taught because that's a shifting sand right there. If, being merciful, yeah, yeah. Except for the people you had to step on to get where you are. Don't, don't worry about them until later when you're coming back down that ladder and they don't show you any mercy. Um, pureness in heart, yeah. Innocence, highly valued. Our society values nothing more than it values innocence. Right. That's the reason we have drag queen story hours in, in libraries nowadays. We don't have value for any of this. Blessed are the peacemakers. Go to Twitter. Try and be a peacemaker. Try and see and reconcile anything. That ain't going to happen. But Jesus says they're the children of God. Blessed are you who are persecuted because of righteousness. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Fantastic. People hate me because I love Jesus. So mine's the kingdom of heaven. My day has come. That's what this sounds like. Jesus has proven himself. He has healed. He's done all that stuff. It sounds like my day has come. He's going to set everything right. And then he finishes it this way. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. Well, I thought we were talking about now. <laughs> I, I misunderstood you, Jesus, because you got my hopes up, because my hopes are still in the wrong place. They're still here. Job had to get over it. Job had to get over it. And he had to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth and he'll plead my case. Even if I don't see it with my eyes, I know it's going to happen. Ultimately, but I don't believe Job had a full vision of what that actually meant. His Redeemer would plead his case before the throne of heaven. And Job, in his eyes, would indeed see God. And he would be greatly rewarded for that. Not in this life, even though Job did get a lot in this life after that. But his reward became the reward in heaven. That became the thing Job began to seek after. He could now have all of those things because no longer were those the primary things in his life. And we've talked before in our group about the, the, there's a song that's sung on Passover by Jews and it's called Diana. And I'm going to read a little bit of it to you and then comment very briefly and then we'll wrap it up. Here's the song. If he had brought us out of, from Egypt and had not carried out judgments against them, Diana, it would have been enough. If he had carried out judgments against them and not against their idols, Diana, it would have been enough. If he had destroyed their idols and had not smitten their firstborn, Diana, it would have been enough. If he had smitten their firstborn and had not given us their wealth, Diana, it would have been enough. If he had given us their wealth and had not split the sea for us, Diana, it would have been enough. If he had split the sea for us and had not taken us through it on dry land, Dainu, it would have been enough. And it goes on from there. And so the point is, is that could I say that? Really? I mean, could I say that, that if he had given us their wealth and had not split the seas for us, it would have been enough? What was the purpose of giving me their wealth if you're going to let me be killed by the sea? And then if he had split the sea and had not taken us through on dry land, it would have been enough? Really? Cool is what it would have been. It wouldn't have been enough. It would have been cool. It would have been a neat thing to see. 
And that would have been the end of it. But no, that's the attitude Jesus is pushing us toward. And it's the attitude he constantly pushes us toward in our lives. Is he enough? What ends up at the end of the life of Jesus is they said it wasn't enough. They wanted something more. They wanted an earthly kingdom. They wanted him to establish the earthly kingdom. And it didn't happen. And because he didn't start the revolution and bring about what they wanted, they said it wasn't enough. And the way they said it wasn't enough is crucify him. You saved others, now save yourself. Come down from that cross. You're a joke. You're not enough. But that wasn't the final verdict on the life of Jesus, was it? The final verdict on the life of Jesus was the resurrection. God said it's more than enough. And it's enough for us. His righteousness is enough for me. His love should be enough for me. His righteousness is enough to get me into heaven. His love for me is enough to get me into heaven. But is it enough for me today and tomorrow and every other day of my life? Or do I want other stuff more? We're heading towards Lent. We're going to be there pretty soon. We think about giving up this, that, and the other thing for Lent. What I'm asking is what would be the hardest thing you could give up for Lent. What is that thing that takes a bunch of your day, a bunch of your week, whatever, where that ties you up and points literally in the direction where your heart is? Is it politics? Is it whatever? It's easy to be that right now. It's the reason I chose it because it does seem to completely have taken over the world. Guilty. Personal. I'm not, claim, I'm not blaming the world. I'm not condemning the world. I will say that I am personally guilty of that issue. But there's other things in my life too. So what I'm saying is, is that when, when we're moving towards Lent here in the next little bit, what is it that would be the most painful thing in your life to give up for Lent? That would leave the biggest hole in your life that you can fill with Jesus. Thank you for listening. This is John Green, and this is Faith Seeking Understanding.